So today, and uh, two weeks from now, I'm going to talk on a theme that I think is very important both for our own inner well-being and our being in the world, particularly in our relationships and in our engagement with the larger world. And that is how to be skillful with a conflict. And by conflict, uh, I want to talk about it a little more neutrally, not necessarily as something involving aggression or hostility or people being angry and so forth, but want to give a definition of conflict simply as a difference that matters. And so we can have an inner conflict, should I stay with this job or not? And the inner conflict can be about the fact that the job um, pays my bills. That's a value, but it's not so meaningful. And having meaningful work is a value. And so I could say I, could say I have a kind of an inner conflict between uh, uh, striving for what's meaningful and meeting my needs for, um, you know, shelter and food and so forth. Okay? So that could be a conflict. That could be an inner conflict. Or I might have an inner conflict. Should I stay in this relationship or not? There's a, a difference. You know, I, I could have different options. So there's a conflict there. And in a similar way, conflict, again, doesn't necessarily involve something uh, involving aggression, hostility, I can have a, a conflict on how should I spend this afternoon. You know, on the one hand, I have a free afternoon and I really could use just, you know, taking a hike in the woods and taking it easy. On the other hand, I have a backlog of emails. For some, that would not be a difficult conflict to deal with. <laughs> Right, but for others it might be. It might be, again, between two values. Uh, one is maybe ease and relaxation for my own being, and the other is um, maybe, I don't know, being responsible, or however we would say it, uh, or um, being uh, dutiful towards my friends or coworkers or whatever. And those, that could be an inner conflict. Right? And we can have also an outer conflict that is uh, involving, let's say, uh, this evening, uh, my partner has uh, been at work all day and uh, come, comes home and really just wants to, you know, would really like to just have an easy evening. I've been home all day, I would like to go out to eat. Right? And we can have an interpersonal conflict between the value of going out and you know, having some new experience, maybe having some good food, and the value of just ease, relaxation, and so forth. We could have a conflict in a similar way. I want to paint this room that I share with a partner, and I really prefer something really vibrant, like uh, purple. <laughs> And my partner says something really subdued, like, uh, you know, light blue, right? And so we could have a conflict there. And we can also have conflicts 
that can uh, get more involved. So I think the, the definition of conflict I wanted to give right at the beginning because it's important. How can we be skillful with conflict? I think one way is, and I'll get to this um, uh, later, is to reframe them, a conflict, as differences in values or perspectives or what's important or what matters as opposed to getting totally hooked by the, the emotional challenges or the difficult emotions that can be there. It helps us to look at it more, uh, more easily. Um, one of the persons I studied conflict with is a man named Johann Galtung, who's done work with the UN and actually personally has helped resolve some international conflicts. And he said this, uh, conflict is a contradiction or clash between goals. It's dangerous when it leads to violent behavior and hateful attitudes. Unresolved conflict may turn violent, but the search for acceptable and sustainable solutions is also an opportunity to create new reality. We get violence and war when conflict is handled badly and peace when it is handled well. The capacity to handle a conflict rests with uh, countries, persons, and actors in general. A major task in today's world is to increase that capacity through a conflict transformation culture, stimulating constructive, concrete, creative ideas. And a culture of peace, a culture of peaceful conflict transformation is a key component. So what I want to point to are a few things. One of them is the way that the basic principles for being skillful with conflict are the same whether it's uh, an, uh, an inner conflict, an interpersonal conflict, or a larger conflict in the community or in the world. Uh, I think the principles are the same. And I also want to suggest that the tools and the capacities that we develop in our meditation practice and our larger spiritual practice are really crucial for being able to be skillful with conflict. A host of different capacities ranging from mindfulness to equanimity to forgiveness to uh, compassion and so forth are really crucial. And what I'll suggest in these two sessions is a way that I think is crucial for our world at every level, whether you know in a home or in your own mind or at schools or um, in the larger world with the most intense conflicts that we have, uh, a vision of bringing together inner capacities that really help with conflict with uh, a perspective about how to work with conflicts that's a little, that comes more from the work of uh, uh, mediators, negotiators, people who've tried to develop a perspective on conflict transformation. So that's, I'm going to bring those two together in, in here and give some, we'll do some exercises and so forth. And I thought I also want to connect that with what's been happening for me the last month, which is that I've just come back two days ago from being in uh, Israel. And I also was in the West Bank. And um, as many of you know, there is an unresolved conflict there, <laughs> which uh, has been around for a while. And I want to bring in some uh, insights, partly just to share my experiences, but to bring in some perspectives that I think can connect 
with the larger approach to uh, working with conflict. And I'll do that through some images that I brought back uh, that will help uh, explore some of both the uh, nature of conflict and the resources that we have uh, to work with conflict. I think today I'm going to primarily both show some of these images and uh, also uh, focus on the inner capacities that are really crucial for working with conflict. And next week I'll bring in, or two weeks from now, I'll bring in the larger, uh, more, more of a framework, a framework for working with conflict which can connect with the inner capacities. So first I want to... Uh, talk about the fact that we have massive social conditioning around how we relate to conflict. And uh, knowing your own conditioning, knowing our own conditioning and attitudes towards conflict is a very important starting point and it's part of the inner knowledge that's really crucial for being with conflict. Generally, the conditioning around conflict falls into two one of two categories, and we may even have both used at different times. And they're, they're both, in a way, extremes. One of them is avoidance. Avoidance of conflict, which is probably stronger for, for most of us. And the other one is somewhat uh, unconsciously acting out conflicts and just jumping into them. So I'll say a little bit about both of those because it's, it's really crucial to look at that. And this is partly something we can discover in our mindfulness practice when we look at conflict. So, for example, my own conditioning around conflict was clearly to, to avoid conflict. I think in my family, we didn't go directly into conflicts. It was somewhat avoided. Conflicts became scary for me because they would manifest only occasionally and when it would sort of be like an explosion, that would be like in the home where a parent would just suddenly get really, really angry and it happened very few times and it was scary. And this may be similar. Anyone relate to that background? So quite a, quite a few of us where, where the general attitude is avoid conflict, but then there are rather small number, and this is my experience, of explosions, which as a kid were really scary and when the conflict was just too much to avoid by, uh, you know, in this case, uh, parents. And so, um, for myself, starting probably in my 20s, I was able to have a more open approach to conflict and the related difficult emotions like anger or, or fear and so forth. And I've learned to be more interested in conflict, even uh, interested because of the potential of conflict to need to lead to new learning. And many of you may have had experiences where you had a conflict maybe with a friend, you were both able to talk out with some degree of empathy shared between you, uh, or maybe someone you're close to, you could actually go into a conflict, maybe like here from each person, what happened, what it was like, and, and actually have that lead to a deeper relationship. 
Anyone have those kind of experiences? You know, often in close relationships, that can happen. We learn how to share the conflict without blaming the other, just saying, this is what happened, to, this is my experience. And it's a whole skill to do that without interpreting and blaming the other. Not easy, right? And, but that out of that can come a deepening and a real learning and, a, and actually a, a more trust of the other person and more uh, confidence that next time we have a conflict, we can deal with it, right? So I've been very interested in that, and I think that is a capacity which can be generalized to communities, to institutions, and to whole societies. And the basic principles, again, are the same. It's basically empathy, compassion, careful listening, and looking for what meets the needs of all sides. It's simple, right? That's it. In terms of a formula, that's all you need to resolve all the major conflicts of the world. Okay? It's that, that's the principle. And I'll, I'll say more about that. And, and some of our meditative tools help a lot. But the, the um, framework or the conditioning to, to be avoidant of, of conflict is very strong. It's very strong in the culture. And how many of you would say your own conditioning was to avoid conflict? Okay. And then how many had, had a conditioning to actually kind of jump into conflict? <clears throat> so it's generally fewer, but it's significant. Like I, I experienced this when I was a student in Boston. I lived for a time in what was called Little Italy. And generally... Um, Generally, in terms of European culture, uh, Northern and Western Europeans avoid conflict, and Eastern and Southern Europeans do not. <laughs> right? And so I would experience being in Little Italy, a lot of people recently from Italy, and they would, um, you know, in the summer, the windows would be open, the conflicts were right out there. <laughs> they, were, they were not avoidant, right? So it's... It's different cultures, and again, in Asian cultures, there can be often uh, more avoidance. So it's, it really varies, right? And, um, and you can have some people who jump into some conflicts but avoid others. So it's a little bit complex, but it's really helpful to know your own conditioning and to try to see how to work with it. But the, the, uh, the conditioning for many of us, is, either, is one of those two extremes, either avoid conflict or jump into it somewhat automatically and unconsciously. And so, of course, I'm going to be suggesting a different approach. Another reason why conflict is difficult for us is that it's also often framed in terms of um, right and wrong, winners and losers, Right? And conflict is often framed so that the resolution of conflicts is framed in terms of I meet my needs, but I don't meet the your needs. It's framed so that, as it were, all needs are not relevant. And we can see this in many, many settings. It's a very pervasive model for resolving conflict. And one of the ways it gets reinforced is by Images and one of the main images that people have for resolving conflict is sports. And I, I call this a dualistic approach to conflict in which there is a winner and a loser. 
and there's not an attempt, and that's a very common approach to conflict, right? And you can see that in sports, right? Where sports are structured commonly around there being a winner and a loser, and that has its merits, you might say, but it's very strong conditioning. And do you remember, I don't know, maybe some of you remember, I think it was about 20 years ago, the all-star game in baseball went into extra innings and there was a tie. And they had to, they were, no one won the game. And people were really upset. <laughs> and you could go back and look at that. They were very upset because there was no winner. And it went against this prevailing framework. And, you know, I think the commissioner was like, oh. you know, it, was, it, was, it, was a, it was a big mess, right? And so we have these different institutions that very much stress uh, dualistically structured conflicts in which the aim is for one, one side to win and the other to lose. And that structures our way of seeing things a lot. You have it in sports, uh, have it also in popular entertainment, right? You have modeled, you know, one side good, one side evil, right? And you have that uh, very, very strong conditioning to see conflicts as about one side uh, winning and the other side losing, which makes it very hard to, have, to respect that uh, model that I suggested is more skillful in which all sides matter, so to speak. And we, and we can look to meet the needs of both. And often in conflictual situations, uh, they're dualistically structured and often the extremes take over. That sometimes can happen in a lot of societies where you don't have uh, good ways of working with conflict. The extremes take over. That happens, for example, in the former Yugoslavia. You can see it with tendencies towards that in many, many cultures, including our own, where you don't have a good, healthy way to deal with conflict. Things go to extremes. Um, there's a poem that uh, the poet Yeats wrote after uh, the conflict in Ireland in 1916. He said, the best lack all conviction while the worst are filled with passionate intensity. That describes conflicts when things have broken down, right? And a lot of places are like that. And of course, related to that is in conflicts, if we don't have skill, inner skills and outer perspectives that are helpful, in conflicts we will tend to think I'm right, the other person's wrong, and we will engage in what we call projection. Do you know that phenomenon? That I will tend to think my opponent has all the negative qualities and I all have all the good qualities. And you see that in many, many conflicts. So there are tendencies towards avoidance or acting out. There are tendencies towards dualism. And there are strong tendencies in conflicts towards projection. Meaning I tend to uh, not really know my opponent but attribute bad things to the opponent. So conflicts with that kind of conditioning are set up to have a lot of mess, right? Does that make sense? Okay, so I want to now share a little bit about a society that I just was in. Uh, Israel also trips to the West Bank where there's a major unresolved conflict related to the occupation of the West Bank. 
and point to also how in our society we have a lot of major unresolved conflicts, right? So I'm going to point to some similarities. And you can see tendencies in these images towards both some of the resources that could be helpful and some of the tendencies that make it harder to deal with conflicts, okay? And partly I just wanted to share some great images and, you know, so my apologies if this is like a home movie or something. (laughs) Okay, so, okay. So the first image is of me in uh, Jerusalem, near the old city. So you can see that now, and I'll go through some images, hopefully kind of quickly. But how many people have been to Israel? Whoa, it's a lot, wow, that's a lot. So these may be, you may have your counterpart of these images, right? (laughs) Right, so, and we have at least one Israeli citizen here. So some of you may correct me on different things, but I wanted to share this partly, uh, uh, partly to frame this. And I should also say that uh, when you talk about going to the Middle East or to Israel to friends, many of them get worried. One of my relatives said, please be safe, don't be a headline. <laughs> people, are, people get anxious, right? And I found that with three quarters of the people that I talked to who had not been there. They think it's, you know, dangerous, scary, and so forth. And I have to say, I had one fairly scary experience there. It was on the taxi, in the taxi on the way to the airport. (laughs) That was my really scary experience, right? Because the taxi driver was going like 80 or 90 mile an hour and weaving all, and... um, that was my scary experience in the Middle East. <laughs> okay, so, um, interesting. So, okay. So here's uh, Tel Aviv, a lot of, you know, a lot of, kind of we, we used the word before, it's kind of a playground, a lot of interesting, a lot of cafes, you can be, have wonderful time. Um, you know, even though there's, un, there's a major unresolved conflict, which is, not sustainable, uh, people can have fun. Just like for us, we know that we have major unresolved conflicts in this culture, the, you know, se- several which come to mind that are, you know, where we don't have, we can't go on like we're going on. One of them is obviously climate uh, disruption. A second, you know, I would say is the whole legacy of racism, you know, unresolved conflict that's been around for 400 years. And I would also say economic inequality, you know, and, uh, you know, you could add to that gender issues and, you know, go on, you know, with, with a list of issues. We have major unresolved conflicts, and yet it's possible to live a good life and be in a culture where there are major unresolved conflicts, go to cafes, you know, um, another cafe, have a, have a good time, have good, good lattes, and uh, still there's an unresolved conflict. There's, here's some more scenes from Tel Aviv, very modern city. It's a beach. You can go to the beach if you wish. Have a, have a good time. And, and also in these, uh, 
in our cultures, we have the, there are these tremendous resources, spiritual resources. And so for me, as being someone of Jewish ancestry, very powerful. This is my second trip to Israel. The first trip was five weeks. And I was very drawn to the city, uh, small city of Sfat, which is in the Sea of Galilee area, which, which is where the tradition of Kabbalah has uh, Jewish mysticism has been strong since the 1400s, right? And I visited there and went to a lot of the synagogues, some of the sacred sites. And so one of the powerful aspects of being in uh, this area in, in uh, Israel is that there's so many sacred sites, which really point, I think, to some of the resources that we would have for working with conflicts. These are amazing traditions. This is a beautiful synagogue. Here's another one. Uh, these were connected with some of the great figures from the 15th and 16th century, like figures of deep spiritual wisdom. You know, so those resources are there in this land. Here's an old, uh, and again, people wearing the... Uh, uh, the black suits, the men, uh, in the Hasidic tradition. Still, you could still see this in some many parts of the U.S. And you know, the I thought I you know I thought many times because the temperature there was always like in the 90s, you know, between 90 and 100, and they're wearing this garb from like uh, Poland in the 18th century. Like maybe they should change it, you know. <laughs> But that's the tradition. It's like 100 degrees and they still have, have these suits on. So anyway, my commentary may be a little insensitive, but I'm, I'm sorry. And uh, here's me with a Kabbalistic rabbi. We had a, a great conversation uh, for about an hour and a half about all sorts of things. And uh, so they have these tremendous resources in, uh, in this culture as in other cultures. And I also went around the Sea of Galilee. I hadn't done that my first trip. This is the small mountain where Jesus gave the Beatitudes. Right? So right where I was standing, not far from it, Jesus spoke about blessed are. Do you remember the Beatitudes? Blessed are the peacemakers and so forth. I think I have some of these here. Yeah, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called children of God. It's a pretty amazing to be in the spot where this happened, right? Where you have these, this amazing being uh, who spoke like this. Here's a, a church uh, that's there on this mountain. Here, let's see. I think, I think I had some other ones, but maybe they're a little later. Uh, let's see. So, let's see. It just looks like I just had, I think it may come a little later. So here nearby is a place called Capernaum where this was the, the synagogue where Jesus uh, practiced, right? Some of you may have, anyone been here to this place? It's quite amazing. Here's the actual old, here are the ruins of the synagogue where Jesus was, right? This, for me, this was amazing. Again, there are tremendous resources there. There are tremendous resources in our culture, right? For healthy way to work with conflict. Um, here's me by the Sea of Galilee. <laughs> And here's uh, another place, Tabga, which is where Jesus reportedly multiplied, like, what was it, several fish and a few loaves of bread and fed 5,000 people. So it's called the Church of the Multiplication, <laughs> right? And uh, very, very interesting. And 
these are pla- the places where I was invited there to teach retreats. I taught three retreats in Israel. Um, this take, they take place at a kibbutz called uh, at Endor, which is um, figures also in the Bible. I think there was a, a woman uh, who's in the Bible who uh, was uh, in the Bible. She's called a witch. Probably we would call her a shaman who had a vision and she communicated to King Saul that there'd be a battle and he would die and this took place like right where I was. So, so everything's like that, right? There's, this was a few miles from a place called Megiddo, which is the place where the Battle of Armageddon takes place. It's named after that. So, you know, it's an interesting place to be. Right? There's all, this things, all these things happening. So also, you know, we ha- I was thinking in terms of conflict, we have these amazing resources from our meditation practice and Here's, right, this is also a scene from the kibbutz. There's a, a mountain called Mount Tabor, pronounced usually Mount Tabor. And this was where um, you can see at the top, there's a monastery. Jesus was on this mountain and had what's called the transfiguration, where he appeared, you know, like streaming light, right? So this happened, all this happened. And we did our retreat here. And this is the land around it. Here are some teachers I taught with. Uh, uh, Yahel Avigar on the left, who is Israel. The other two are Israeli teachers. The, another in the middle is Zohar Levy, who actually lives in England and sometimes comes to the U.S. And so here's the end of a retreat. We had a retreat with about 60 people. I actually did two retreats there and one in Tel Aviv. So it's just to show, I was told that in Israel, the number of people practicing mindfulness per capita is more than the U.S., so it's very strong. The majority of uh, Jews in Israel are secular. Right? They're not religious. There's a lot of complexities there. But anyway, so we had a very wonderful retreat. So I'm really showing these images partly to show that there are these great resources. You have the resources from Jewish mystical tradition, from Christian tradition, from the traditions connected with mindfulness, which could be very powerful. And then here's... Uh, I'll start to go into some of the conflict. This is a, uh, an Israeli city that's called Arab, you know, which means basically the people are those who did not leave in 1948, who are, we would call Palestinian. And so and this is East Jerusalem, which is also Palestinian in the occupied territory. And you can see in the back what's called the separation barrier, which was built around 2001 or two after a number of terrorist incidents in Jerusalem and other places. And so here's the old city. I'm, this is a particular hopeful image to me because if you look carefully at this image, on the right you can see a gold dome, which is a sacred place to Islam. In the middle you can see a silver, small silver canopy, which is a, a synagogue. And then on the left you can see the towers are Christian churches. So in Jerusalem, you have like the holiest site for Jews, the holiest site for Christians, and the third holiest site for Muslims. It's within a hundred yards of each other, right? And here's Mount Zion with the Christian churches. Another image of the uh, gold dome, and here's this is now Bethlehem. So you have these sacred. So I went. I made one trip to Bethlehem, which is of course where Jesus was reportedly born. And this is in the West Bank. So this is a Palestinian city. Actually, Israelis are forbidden to go there. 
and you can see the minaret and another image. Here's the church where the Jesus was supposedly born. And then also, this is, I'll finish with some images here. Also going kind of through the part of the middle of Bethlehem is a separation barrier. So this is really a sign of the unresolved conflict. And there's graffiti everywhere. Uh, but this is, uh, goes through the middle of the city, right? And this is to separate the Jewish parts from the uh, Palestinian parts. Here's another image. And life goes on. <laughs> A lot of graffiti on the walls. <laughs> so it's quite, uh, quite uh, creative. Here's another image. There's graffiti all over the wall, at least on one side. There's some image. So here's, it's, I don't know if you can see it, it says, here are God's children, right? So they're, attempts to kind of see things in a different way. And there was a, there's a museum there. <laughs> you know, this is related to the famous hotel in uh, New York. <laughs> the Waldorf Astoria. So this is the Waldorf Hotel. This is connected with the British uh, artist Banksy, right? And this, this is also a museum about the wall and here you can see the welcome. You made it. Welcome to Palestine. The wall outside might seem part of an ancient and intractable conflict, but it began exactly a hundred years ago with an Englishman and a stroke of a pen. Today there is profound inequality between Palestinian and Israeli people enforced by the wall and military occupation. This exhibition looks at the wall from many angles and so contains material some people may find upsetting and I found it quite compassionate and empathic. It was not one-sided and you know some of you may remember I when I uh, gave some talks two years ago I framed the conflict as a conflict between two traumatized people with an asymmetry of power. So there's trauma and deep wounding really on both sides is my is my view. So again this is that was so just to be clear on, on one way that I framed it. And so I don't know if you can see this so well. This is from the Balfour Declaration from nineteen nineteen, from you know, when Britain was in charge and said, We do not propose to to go through the form of consulting the wishes of the present inhabitants of this country. <laughs> right? So that was when a lot of things were set in motion. So I'm not going to go into the history so much here, but um, some of you know the history. Uh, after attempts to reach a UN-brokered uh, partition, there was a removal, it says, of 60% of the Arab population, or that we would call Palestinians, uh, and so forth. This was an image from, which really, an image from inside the museum, uh, artwork of a child with, with, and I, 
and found this very powerful, sort of the, the heart torn out of the wall. And here's uh, one of the very hopeful signs I found. Um, we were shown around Bethlehem and, and uh, this area by a young woman that we met um, named uh, Ilda Zagmut, who was a friend of uh, Zohar's. And we met her and she drove us around for a number of hours. And she took us to her uh, studio, which is the first yoga studio in the West Bank. And she told us of her work. So I'm talking about some of the really hopeful signs. And it was wonderful to meet with her. And she told us of how she was presenting yoga and to some extent meditation as a vehicle for self-care so one can take care of others. And I found this uh, quite powerful. It relates to what I'll talk about just in a moment. And she had done work with, you know, both with offering yoga and some extent meditation, but also uh, offering that to a woman who had been in prison. And also she worked with some youth groups who were activists in the West Bank. You know, and uh, she described wonderful scenes in which she worked with a group called Youth Against Settlements in Ramallah, and which is in the West Bank. And she worked with these kind of macho young guys and she got them dancing and doing yoga and so forth. It was pretty cool. She described one thing where she said, who wants to do the mermaid's dance? And, and these kind of macho guys did it, right? So it was, it was pretty cool. So I found that a, a major sign of, of hope happening uh, there. And, you know, here's... So I just want to come back to tremendous resources in this area. This was in, I think this was in uh, Jerusalem, just, you know, on a, on a Friday evening, seeing a man, an old man studying. And then here, you know, back to the, here are the images from the uh, Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. We usually hear that as inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And so, and here's me at the Western Wall, which is the most sacred place for Jews. And you can see right a short distance away is the Muslim Dome of the Rock, just right there. Yeah. And so here again is the image with the three great religions, their sacred sites. So I think that's it. So we can turn, turn that off. So I presented that partly out of (laughs) self-indulgence. But uh, partly because I hope that's interesting to see and to see some of the hopeful signs and just to see all the resources. You know, people are doing meditation. People, you know, have these tremendous resources from this tradition. So I want to talk briefly and then we'll have some discussion. The way I'm framing this is because I presented as partly the images at the end. There's a major unresolved conflict there. But we have major unresolved conflicts here. And again, many of us may live lives of some comfort or ease, but we know that we're living in a kind of a bubble, right? And that things are not sustainable. And so how do we approach the conflict? What's an approach? And so today I'll talk a little bit further about the inner qualities which we can develop in, in our forms of mindfulness and our forms of practice and also there, I think, in the other traditions you can develop these qualities. So, um, so the first kind of inner quality 
that I'm going to recommend. I'm going to invite us in the next two weeks, if you wish, and this would be the case whether you're going back to Boulder or Annapolis or Pacifica, whatever, and may not be here in two weeks, but we'll record it and you can listen. You know, is that um, can you take, you know, with some guidance, can you take any experiences of conflict that you have in the next two weeks as a chance to learn something? That's the starting point. Not as shut down, do ordinary conditioning, avoid. You know, and the key is start with the easier conflicts, not the hardest ones. Right? Start with the easier ones and work out. So one key tool, and I'll talk about the inner qualities first, and then I'll say the outer perspective that I'm saying, in a nutshell, it's try to be empathic towards the others involved with the conflict and try to get a sense of what matters for them. That's the key. That's going to be the key. Uh, that's the ver- that's the one-line version of it. Okay. For the inner qualities, we want to develop mindfulness. Know what is um, happening in your mind when there's conflict. Study what's going on in your in your mind, in your heart, in your body. Is there uh, fear? Is there overwhelm? Is there anger? Is there something else? Right. And our mindfulness practice lets us look. So part of this is to say, when there's a conflict, don't just act out, don't just avoid, but actually look carefully at what's going on inside. And we may find that there are difficult emotions, like the ones I've mentioned, fear or anger, confusion. Maybe we're judgmental, maybe we're sad, right? See what's there with the conflict. Particularly notice... How does the mind get stuck in a conflict? That's a really important one. How do, how do you get stuck in your mind, maybe focused on, I'm right, you know, how could that happen, right? You want to notice all those things, right? It really notice how the mind gets stuck. Now, you can be in a conflict and have a lot of difficult emotions and still be noticing something that has validity. Maybe someone, maybe your friend did not keep an agreement, and there's a conflict because it matters for you to keep the agreement, and maybe your friend in that moment, something else came up, right? So you can, being in a conflict, can coexist with you with something that matters for you where you have, um, as it were, something valid on your side, right? This isn't saying just give up your sense of what's ethical or right and wrong and so forth. Okay, so... We can work with our difficult emotions. We can work with our thoughts that get us stuck. The key is look at these in when they come up in your meditation. And sometimes we can deliberately choose to bring them up. You know, at the end of a sitting, bring up what you're experiencing in a given conflict. Again, inner conflict or interpersonal conflict. Sometimes a conflict is unresolved, can we be with the unknown with balance? Can I sometimes be in an attitude of don't know what's going to happen and have some balance and equanimity with that? So you see how I'm kind of repeating some of the themes which might be themes of how we work with our minds in general and I'm applying them to, to conflict. Look to see if you're attached to views or opinions. 
Attachment to views and opinions has been known to occur when there are conflicts. In fact, seldom does a conflict occur where that doesn't occur. And so part of what we can do, remember this is an inner practice and this is not, remember just to repeat, this is not at all, like being skillful with conflict is not at all about being nice, giving up what's true for you, being a pushover, giving up your point of view. It's not about that, right? But it's about being more creative, less stuck with the situation. So look for where you get attached to views or stuck in views. Especially crucial is to see where the mind gets reactive, right? Where the mind particularly pushes away at uh, something that's happened, someone something did, or grabs hold often of a view or a sense of I'm right. We want to look at that very carefully. We want to look at when the mind is reactive and we know that the mind's often reactive when something unpleasant has happened. We know that teaching, uh, teaching of the two arrows, which I offer on these Wednesday mornings about every you know, sixth or seventh meeting. Some of you have heard this. If you've been coming for a lot, you've heard it a lot. But this very powerful teaching where the Buddha is talking with practitioners, he said, everyone experiences the unpleasant at times. How does a practitioner differ from a non-practitioner? And he says, yes, that's true. Everyone experiences at times the unpleasant, unpleasant uh, body sensations, physical sensations, unpleasant emotions, unpleasant interactions. In that, everyone's the same. But he said, that unpleasant experience is like being shot by an arrow, the first arrow. And he said that where a practitioner differs from a non-practitioner is that a non-practitioner will tend, because of the first arrow, to shoot what he called a second arrow, react against the unpleasant by blaming oneself, blaming another person, saying something mean, saying something negative. And he said what one can learn to do when you're shot by the first arrow is not to shoot the second arrow. And I would say that's one of the keys to being skillful with conflict. Because so often we have something happen that's unpleasant and we will automatically react and push it away. And actually some of the great peacemakers who espouse models of nonviolence like Gandhi and King, they're basically saying the same thing. We have received pain or oppression. We will not pass on the pain or oppression by reacting in the same way that something has been done to us. Rather, we will meet the negative with wisdom and love. That's the aspiration of people like Gandhi and King, which is a, it's a high bar, right? But that's, that's, that's what it is. And so I'll mention one or two further things then we can open things up that we also, one of the deep inner practices that we can do in conflict is to have empathy and compassion for ourselves and the other. And that's not easy. We really have to practice empathy and compassion. And next, thing, next time I may take us through some empathy and compassion practices that we have to have ways when we're in a conflict or a difficult situation to have the heart present, have the kind heart present. Again, it doesn't mean being a pushover or giving up our, our truth, right? How to do that. Just two other things. One is 
the quality of equanimity is very important with conflict. How can I stay balanced no matter what's happening? Not be too reactive, you know? Have, keep kind of an even keel. You know, it's one of the hallmarks of, uh, you know, many people. I was thinking of, uh, do you remember the Golden State Warriors? Anyone remember them? They're kind of off the radar these days, right? But the Golden State Warriors, a lot of the players, they talk about not being too high and not being too low. That's equanimity. You know, uh, it's very valuable in sports, it's very valuable in daily life, it's very valuable in conflicts. Equanimity, okay? And then the last one is having some body practices that you can do in conflict because sometimes conflicts really affect our body. We can get really wired, we can get uh, emotionally flooded. Do you know those physiological things that happen when you have a conflict? They're hard to deal with, right? And so it's valuable to have some body practices that let you get recentered. You know, something like yoga, maybe qigong. Uh, just doing something physical is often very important. Some way of working through the physical impact of, of often of difficult emotions. And so having in one's toolbox a, a set of things to do when, when there's conflict is very important as well. So let me see if I have um, a way to close. So that's what I wanted to present today. I wanted to present some images of actual conflicts. We can think of the ones we're part of, you know, inner conflicts, interpersonal conflicts, or conflicts that involve um, larger conflicts in our world. And the encouragement is for us to be people who get really skillful with conflict first, where it's easier, maybe in inner conflicts, interpersonal conflicts, and then to the extent that so many of us are needed to deal with the larger conflicts of the world, bring those capacities out into the world. Maybe I'll close with something that I find really hopeful, which is that um, research into the history of nonviolence has shown that when 2.5% of the population are engaged in a nonviolent um, way to deal with conflict, historically, there's always been victory. When you have 2.5% of the population engaged in dealing with a conflict through nonviolent and often spiritual means, historically, there's always been success. So the question is, are you part of the 2.5%? and how to do that. Okay, so I'll end with that, with that note, okay? So time for any questions about conflict or about anyone wants to ask anything about the images, about, uh, about being in Israel, conflicts there, anything, that, anything that's on your mind. We have a question at the back. When I was in Jerusalem, the first uh, person uh, my husband and I talked to was a Palestinian who um, gave his point of view. Mm -hmm. And I agreed 100% his position. The next day, we talked to a Jewish person, and he gave his position, and I agreed with him 100%. (laughs) 
Yeah. And I thought, no wonder this is not resolved. Because both seem to have ancient claims. Yeah. And uh, that was the first time for me that, yes, you are right. Yes, you were also right. Yeah. Both can't be right. Yeah. Or, and what part of you made that comment, both can't be right? Just from my conditioning, I think. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's... um... What I'll talk about next time is what we call, what's called in the conflict transformation world, the win-win model or the both-end model of conflict transformation. Probably a lot of you know that. How many of you are familiar with that? You know, it's been um, popularized especially by a series of books that come out of what's called the Harvard Negotiation Project. Books like Getting to Yes. You know, it's been a, a basis for negotiation and mediation And that really suggests, you know, so I mentioned that the conditioning is to have a dualistic approach to conflict where it's either one side wins or the other side wins. And so part of what you can explore, we can explore in very low-level conflicts is whether it's possible to see what really matters, as it were, with each side, whether it's two sides within me or two people or something larger. And can there be a way to work out the uh, uh, work work out the way to meet the needs of both sides. Now, clearly, in uh, Israel Palestine, that's hard, but the uh, the perspective is rarely taken. You know, uh, because it's someone told me before I left, it's sometimes seen as a zero sum game, which means means it's structured dualistically. Either one side wins or the other side wins. Clearly what's needed is a different approach, right? And so I think part of the solution is to develop a culture where people approach conflict in general very differently. You know, and to have that be taught in the schools to five-year-olds, right? I have students who do that here in the U.S. who are teaching alternative ways to deal with conflict at a very young age. You know, I remember at the time of the first Gulf War, Jack Kornfield's daughter, who was five or six at the time, wrote a letter to President Bush one. And she said, you know, this was before any military action has been taken. And she remembered there was like three months build up to the first Gulf War. And she said, please, what we are studying in school is that when you have a conflict, you talk with the other person. Please do that. <laughs> right and so but but yeah the the situation in Israel is very compelling i mean it's very difficult and there's something compelling i think on both sides right and so avoiding one-sided solutions is really crucial and it's not easy right um because you can have a fairly compelling uh argument and it's complex right and so, um, and there's tremendous, you know, on the, on the Israeli side, there's tremendous level of fear, a lot of which is rooted in trauma, both recent and maybe, you know, 2,000 years plus of trauma, right? You know, and you, you can feel, that I can feel those echoes a lot, right? 
that, you know, we have always been, we have to look out for ourselves, we have always been treated poorly and, and worse, you know. So, yeah, it's so uh, not easy and, you know, I'm not sure what it will take. You know, maybe, uh, you know, some people I talked to talked about the present system being kind of broken and you have to wait another generation or two. Some people think that, you know, until you have, you know, some people found hope in the fact that young people, uh, whether Palestinian or, or Jewish Israeli or uh, Israeli Palestinian, um, are increasingly their lives don't look that different and their clothes don't look that different and they use the same apps. <laughs> Right, and so some people found that to be a hope, right? You know, you know, we're kind of, are we really that different, right? So, um, but yeah, some people thought it would take uh, a few genera- a generation or two. So other thoughts or questions? Yeah, please. What? Oh, okay, I'm, I'm not sure if I can formulate this clearly, yeah. but what what I see going on politically in this country yeah. is fears and threats are purposefully stoked up for right. the ends of power, control, and money. Right. And I have no idea how to even look, approach that or... or how, to, how to work with uh, what seemed to be the stoking of fear, which certainly occurs in Israel plenty, right? And it's a way to, as you mentioned, to have a certain level of control. What would be, I think that... Uh, it's really the, the patient work to um, offer an alternative and to do that in many, many ways, which is based on connection and compassion and empathy, right? And uh, I think, you know, my sense is, is that when, you know, basically the extremes are actually in the minority, whether it's in the Islamic world or the uh, Jewish world in Israel or or here, the extremes are in the minority, but what happens in some conflict situations is that the uh, extreme minority gain more power. That's, that you know happened in Germany in 1933 and so forth, and it's, it happens sometimes, right? So what you have to do <clears throat> is like create the culture where the extremes are more and more marginalized. That's not easy, right? But that's, that's the basic formula. And do that by actually bringing out this, the, basically the middle, and doing so on the basis of empathy, compassion, and a different way to approach conflict, right? So some of it I think we just have, have to build up and to, to know that. And it's basically to not play the game of the extremes. In some places, you know, you think that... Of, people oppose the extremes by using the same tactics. That certainly happened in Germany in ni- before 1933. You know, there were pitched battles on the street between rightists and leftists. That didn't end very well. Right? That, that's happening here to some extent. Right? And that can happen. So it's like to build really the culture of empathy and connection and compassion. You know? Easier said than done, but that would be the approach. And you can do that just by connecting, by offering alternatives, by speaking up, offering another model, right? Yeah, please. Um, I think of the, when I think of the word compromise, yeah. 
I know this isn't right, but I think the first thing that comes to me is loss. Oh, I'm going to lose something. I'm going this to what? Loss. I'm going to have to give up something. Give up I'm something, yeah. something. Yeah. And I notice that you talked for about a half hour. You never used that word. Yeah. I'm wondering if there was a reason. Yeah, the reason was that I was going to talk about it next week, next time. <laughs> it plays a, in terms of understanding kind of the larger perspective for meet, eventually meeting the needs of both sides, where you have a simple conflict between two sides. Compromise plays a very important role because basically you want to get away from the dualistic structure of conflict, a win-lose model. And you can do that in three main ways. And, and sometimes the best thing you can do is just have a ceasefire where you avoid conflict, where you get away from the win-lose model by just toning things down, not actively fighting, so to speak. And that's very valuable. And then the second step is, is more like a compromise. And the third step is the actual win-win solution. Often you only get to the win-win by going through the other two. And so compromise plays a very important role in eventually meeting the needs of all sides. Because meeting some of the needs of all sides and not meeting some of the needs can be a way station on the way to meeting all the needs. So very much plays a very important role in skillful work with conflict. And so, but I, I wanted to uh, divide what I'm doing a little bit into more the inner tools and the outer tools. If I hadn't shown my slideshow, I could have done both. <laughs> but I, I, I hope, did you enjoy the slides? And just seeing that, I think it's a little bit of, you know, getting a sense of a different culture and the issues being parallel. That's, that was one of the points I wanted to make. We have, it's not like we don't have unresolved conflicts. Like they're different. But, you know, we have kind of half dealt with racism from the last 400 years. We've dealt with it some, but not fully, right? In my, in my view. Yeah. Anyone else? We'll have, have time for maybe one more. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to... Add A little closer. I want to ask your opinion on yeah. the, the dualistic approach to, like, to, to solving conflict you, know, you say is, is not productive. But it really seems... Like, I feel like especially in my generation that people are, you know, it's like there used to be this, this like mentality of you keep your resolve harder and your knuckles harder and that's how you, you obtain morality. And in my generation, it's almost like this is completely lost. There's, there's no resolve. There's no principle. Yeah. And it's like, what do you do? Like, it almost seems like it's, it's kind of, it, like it ignores that the, this, this, this problem to, to solving conflict ignores the reality of there, there's so many cases when, when there just can't, when there, ha when there is a winner, when there is a loser. Yeah. You know, I was talking to a guy from Sierra Leone a, a few days ago, and he, he said something like, he said, uh, you know, he, he said, when we have, AI, when everything is powered by AI. When, when everything is what? He said, when, when everything is run by AI, the government will pay us. Because in Sierra Leone, if I see a young guy and he's eating a sandwich, and I'm, I'm older than him, and I'm hungry, I'm going to go to him and take that sandwich. Yeah. You know, he said, people, they come into our house, and I have five brothers, and I call the police, and they can't pay the police. So the police don't come, and I have five brothers, and we have some guns, and they come into our house, and we deal yeah. with them. Yeah. 
And I just think about, you know, it's like, and it's like those cases like really are, are not in the minority and, and there's so many things, you know, yeah. so many just like, just, just, just things like that. Yeah. You, know, you can't have any, but that'll never be okay just because of the reality of the world. Yeah. Well, what we're really trying to, tr to do is to change the reality of the world and to do so on the basis of ethical principles and skillful ways of working with the mind and heart and really using the resources which were at the center of a place like Spirit Rock and as I think I was wanting to point to in the, uh, in the images is actually at the heart of the great spiritual traditions. You know, one, someone who, one of my teachers and mentors was a man named Houston Smith uh, does anyone know his work? Be beautiful. Look on YouTube. Amazing man. And his life work was really trying to point to how the deepest expressions of every spiritual tradition were saying the same thing. It's controversial somewhat, but that's what he was saying, and that impacted me a lot. And so we have these resources, and yes, there are situations where uh, you know where things are brutal and where ethical principles. Uh, don't have the strength to have much meaning, right? But uh, I think in our culture, we, and in many cultures, that's not where we are. We have, the, we have these principles, and I think we can really um, try to maintain this alternative, of, uh, which is based really on respecting every human being, respecting the earth, and taking that as a way to live, and recognizing that there are forces and conditions which uh, make that harder, right? And, and, and even in some cases lead to a breakdown of uh, ethical principles and ways of life that have been there for some time. So it's really to um, suggest that uh, alternative approaches are possible. The conditions are hard, but... Um, you know, it's also, the, it's also the sense, like in the, I think, I Ching, number 49, says, where there is crisis, there is opportunity. And so I, I go along with those who see the crisis as an opportunity to actually come to a higher level of humanity and connection with the earth. And that's, that's where I'm going. Right? And so I want to invite everyone to come with me. Okay, so maybe that's a way to end. Where there is crisis, there is opportunity, but you need good tools and perspectives. That's, that's the idea here. So, okay, so we'll offer, as we do in a traditional way, the benefits of our being together to ourselves, to those in our lives, but also beyond these circles, we offer the benefits of our meeting together to all beings without exception. So thank you. Thank you for your attention. And I would have loved to kind of have this be a six-hour thing. We could have kept going. And, but thank you, for, thank you for your attention and uh, to be continued. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.